It's good to be back with you uh, for the opportunity to um, bring a lesson today. And um, my message today is going to be um, on Mark chapter 8, verses 27, and chapter 9, verse 1. You know, it's interesting, um, all of us have labels. Or descriptors. So if someone says, what do you do? You know, I'm in IT. The minute you say that, people think, oh, okay, you can fix this and fix that. Ask Craig, he wears a T-shirt. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Or you might be a housewife and other people are going to look, oh, you're a housewife, so you must do this, 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 this and this. Well, no, not necessarily. (laughs) Let me tell you what I do. We won't get into that debate. Um, You might be a doctor. Well, don't ask Michael Evans to do an operation on your head. (laughs) Your expectation of that doctor is not the same as what he is in a doctor. It's like people ask me, what do you do? I'm a chairman. Sit down for five hours and I'll tell you what it does. Or you could be an engineer and there's an expectation that engineers just do this, this and this. Of course, unless you're a South African engineer because you do everything. But everybody has an expectation of what a label looks like. And in this passage, we're going to hear about a label that was put on someone and we're trying to work out what it is. And it's a critical passage. So much that we can get out of it is amazing. So, we get to this point where... Jesus has been doing miracles, he's been talking in parables and everybody knows who he is, supposedly. So we start off in Mark chapter 8 and Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Amazing question. How many people have you asked that question to? Who's Who's Jesus? He asked them, who do people say that I am? It's a critical question and he wants to know the answer. So they replied and told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others are one of the prophets. That's who they think Jesus is. When Jesus asked about that, his disciples echoed, echoed the descriptive, well, the opinions expressed in Mark chapter 6 and earlier. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had come, become known, some said. John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like the one of prophets of old. The answers all reflect an inadequate view or an adequate description of Christ. John the Baptist had a, a preparatory role. He asked, he looked for another messenger far greater than himself, as he said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 7 to 8. When we talk about one of the prophets, that reflects an even lower view of Jesus. He's merely one of many prophets who have been on the scene of Israel's history. It is surprising, really, isn't it, that the disciples do not report that anyone said that Jesus was the Messiah. No one said that. Because if they did, Mark would have put it in there. 
And especially since the demons recognised who he was and he said so publicly in Mark chapter 1 verse 24. So his messiahship was revealed, but they didn't pick that up. But here comes the more important question. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What's your view? What's your interpretation of what Jesus is? Of course, Peter, as usual, jumps in. You are the Christ. Jesus is getting very intimate here. Who do you, my most intimate, trusted friends, in contrast to the previous verse, the other people? You are the Christ, Peter speaks. Not only for himself, he's also the spokesman for the twelve, as we know. And his confession is one of the themes throughout this gospel. The Greek word Christos translates the Hebrew Messiah, meaning Messiah, and means the anointed one of God. The word carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, a consecration to his service and with power to accomplish the task that's assigned to him. Peter's confession reveals some real insight into the nature of Christ's person and mission. But his concept of that messiahship was far from perfect. Peter still had much to learn of Messiah's suffering, the rejection and death, as the immediately following incident shall reveal. In verse 13 he says, and strictly, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And we might think that's a bit strange, isn't it? Why, why tell no one about it? Peter's rightly identified him as the Messiah, but Jesus ordered the disciples not to tell anyone. Let me remind you to recall Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching referring to Jesus, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus ordering the demons not to make him known. And you may recall there is his instruction to Peter, James and John not to tell about the transfiguration until after he'd been raised from the dead. In Mark chapter 9, verse 9. The last of these provides a time limit for this news. After Jesus' resurrection, he could be proclaimed as the Christ. Although we are not told the rationale for all this in Mark. But I'm inclined toward the proposal that Jesus wanted his messiahship kept a secret until it could be in sight of the cross. Only the light of the cross could all one truly understand what it meant to be Jesus Christ. And also being mindful of the Hebrews' view of our Messiah. They're thinking, we've got a real king coming here and we can, we can take on the world. Can you imagine them all hearing about this and taking up arms and let's kill everybody? We've got the king on our side. No, that's not 
That's not what Jesus had in mind here. That's not what he was planning. And we see what happens next. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the other scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The expectations of the apostles, we've got a king, we've got a messiah, we've got a leader. And Jesus just pulled up Peter and says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed. Yeah. What does that sound like for leadership? It's depicting the Son of Man as a heavenly figure who at the end of time brings the kingdom to the oppressed on earth. It's reflected in the sayings of Jesus throughout Mark's Gospel that speak of the coming of the Son of Man in his Father's glory with the holy angels in Mark 8, 38, 13, 26, Mark 14, 62. The title has, however, been infused with additional meaning, especially in these passages that associate the Son of Man with suffering and death. It is evident Jesus considered Son of Man a messianic title because immediately following Peter's confession of him as the Christ, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is equivalent to Christ in verse 29, must suffer. The Son of Man must die and suffer. The necessity arises first from the hostility of men, secondly from the spiritual nature of his work, which made it impossible for him to oppose force to force, and thirdly from the providential purpose of God, who made the death of Jesus the central thing in redemption. Verse 32. He spoke plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I like that plainly. (laughs) It's simple language. There's nothing difficult about this. It's simple, plain. You know, you don't need a theological degree to read those first few verses and understand what Jesus' message is. Then you get Peter. Whoa, 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 wait, come over here. Let me, let me, let's have a chat about this, you know. This is not looking good, Jesus, you know. I don't think you're going down the right path here. Mark's declaration that he spoke plainly about this suggests he had not spoken plainly but leads to the conclusion that this is the beginning of a new stage of Jesus' teaching. And when I think about that, remember the journey. Jesus is going to die and he's going to leave these people. What's their job? What is their job when he goes? 
It's to teach the world about Jesus. So guys, you better understand him. You better understand who he is. Don't have your own expectations of what that looks like. Don't you think what it looks like. I'm telling you what it is and you need to know that because I'm leaving you to preach to the world about me. He speaks plainly about his suffering and his role as son of man and Messiah. The message got through to Peter, but he refused to accept it. Peter had the greatest difficulty in conceiving of a messiahship in any other than the popular theological and political categories. A suffering messiah? Unthinkable. The messiah was a symbol of strength, not weakness. So Peter took Jesus aside and amazingly rebuked him. And the word translated rebuked as the same one used for the silencing of the demons that Jesus used in Mark chapter 1. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not sitting, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' words to Peter were not only very severe, they were deliberately spoken in the presence of the other disciples. Notice, he turned. He turned. I kind of suspect that they didn't get it either. And Jesus knew that. So he turns and gives it to them as well. They probably shared Peter's views and needed the rebuke as well. The severity of the rebuke arises from Jesus' recognition in Peter's attempt to dissuade him. Dissuade him from going to the cross. Dissuade him from the suffering. Dissuade him from dying which is the same temptation that Jesus experienced from Satan in the outset of his ministry. Satan offered him the option of using the world's means of accomplishing his mission in Matthew chapter 4. On that occasion, Jesus rebuked him. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. Here too, Jesus recognised the satanic opposition in Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have... In mind, the things of God, but the things of men. Peter clearly was opposing the divine will. He had in mind a popular messiahship. That was the way the world thought. It was not how God had planned Jesus' ministry and mission. Then we go on to verse 34. Try that, George. Thanks. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, this is this is getting this is getting difficult. Call the crowd to him, along with his psalm, said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And we see Jesus addressing the crowd now. It's gone from the apostles to the crowd. 
The requirements for following him are not just for the twelve, but for all the disciples. Two requirements, denial of self and taking up one's cross and following Jesus. By denial of self, Jesus does not mean to deny oneself something. He means to renounce self, to cease to make self the object of one's life and actions. This involves a fundamental reorientation of the principle of life. God, not self, is the centre of life. Cross-bearing does not refer to some irritation in life. Rather, it involves the way of the cross. The picture is a man already condemned, required to carry his own cross on the way to the place of execution, as Jesus required to do. Although the cross was a Roman method of execution, it was well known to the Jews of the day. Verse 35 and verse 36. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This statement relates to a situation in which the disciples faced the alternatives of confessing Christ or denying him. Jesus warns that by denying him, one's physical life may be saved. But one's eternal life, his salvation, will be lost. Conversely, to lose one's physical life by remaining true to Christ, that is, by confessing him under duress, is to be assured of eternal life and salvation. This seems to be the meaning of that verse in the context of Mark. Thus it would have sounded a warning to any who might be thinking of defecting under trial because he says, for me, for me, stresses the absoluteness of Jesus' claim for allegiance and for the gospel. These two verses, 35 and 36, next one, 37, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 36 and 37 emphasise the incomparable worth of the psyche or eternal life or soul. Not even the whole world compares in value to it, in verse 36. And once a man has forfeited his share in eternal life, in this context by denial of Jesus, there's no way he can get back, according to verse 37. Even the whole world, even if it had, could not buy back eternal life for him. Another stern warning, recanting the Christian walk. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Here's the climax of that warning. To be ashamed of Jesus and his word, the equivalent of saving one's life in verse 35, has serious consequences. In the end at the judgment, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person. The verse clearly identifies the one, or clearly of me, Jesus says. In the first part, the Son of Man, in the second part. The mention of his Father's glory with the holy angels suggests the final judgment, as it does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. Closing off from verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You could have much theological debate about what this means, but I'm going to make, try and make it plainly simple, as Jesus did. Jesus prefaces in the announcement with this solemn, I tell you the truth. The metaphor, the metaphor, taste death, is a reference to a violent death for the sake of Jesus. Before that happens, to some of them, they will seek, see God's kingdom come in power when Jesus is resurrected. We can't interpret this verse to mean that Jesus taught that the second coming would come in the lifetime of the disciples, because nowhere else in the Gospels does he do that. In summary, Jesus needed to ensure the apostles clearly understood who he was. He was leaving them on the earth to preach and teach all about Christ. His mission to save all mankind and offer all the hope of eternal life. What do we do with this passage? It's for us. You heard him talk about not just the apostles, for the disciples. What do we do with that? How often do you ask yourself the question, who do I say Jesus is? I like it when Jesus asks someone else, who do you say Jesus is? Talk about a perfect, wonderful, evangelistic model. Because what does he do next after he asks the question? He says, well, let me teach you about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. What a wonderful example for all of us to follow. We're his disciples. Do we not all see that? Let's get back to the labels. First thing we say, well, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I'm a chairman, I'm an accountant. Do we ever think I have a label called Christian I have a label called ambassador. I am a Christian who's a teacher. I'm a Christian who's a nurse. I'm a Christian who's a retired person. They might just ask you, why are you doing that? Well, let me teach you more accurately about Jesus. Now, that's a challenge. You see, because today, we tend to make Jesus into our own image. We eliminate any eternal claim that he might exert in our lives. 
Some will present him as a revolutionary who gathered a band of desperados to bring about a social liberation of the oppressed peasants. Others present him as an itinerant, non-violent teacher, spouting pithy maxims. Still others as a charismatic healer, trying to reform Judaism. These speculations are no closer to the truth than the best guesses of Jesus' contemporaries of the time that we just read about in Mark. Many will respect Jesus as an ethical, if impractical, teacher whose memorable sayings about turning the other cheek, not casting the first stone, and loving your neighbour, they make for absorbing reading. The Jesus Mark presents, however, is not simply a Galilean holy man, a nice teacher, a fervent prophet, a peasant leader, a wandering cynic calling people to live according to common sense and natural law. He is the son of God. We cannot put him into a non-religious categories that allow us to evade the claim that God makes on our lives. He is the Messiah whom God sent to suffer and save his people through his death and resurrection. We are going to face people who have the same views as they did in Mark's time. And the only way we're going to hear about those views is if we ask them, what is your view? And what must we do? Be like Jesus. Jesus resisted the pressure to conform to the expectations of his opponents who challenged him to prove his claims with a decisive messianic sign. He must also fend off the wishful thinking of his closest followers, who are influenced by popular expectations of what Messiah is supposed to do. They expected one who will be Solomon-like in performing exorcisms, Moses-like in providing bread in the desert, Joshua-like in leading the conquest, That will recapture the promised land from the pagans. And David-like in establishing a triumphant kingdom with Israel's enemies serving as footstools. The temptation for Jesus to meet the expectations of his little band of followers must have been enormous. Why? They might desert me. They might desert me when, when I need them the most. It's a challenge. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who want to carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share the fasting. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer, particularly suffer for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as breaking of bread, few as drinking the cup of suffering. Many revere his morality, few that follow him in the indignity 
of his cross. Many love Jesus as long as nothing counters to them. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive their comfort from him. We too face that same temptation to evade Jesus' stern demands by substituting a more congenial, less rigorous variant of Christianity. Many today appear to want choices, not eternal imperatives. We live in a consumerist society and many approach religious life no differently from any other aspect of their life. They come to church as consumers. Jesus only pledges one thing, to do God's will. Even if he must die alone. It is often a lonely business when one must leave the pack and head off in a direction demanded by God. To preach Christ crucified and to live, it means that one will court rejection and ridicule. Apostle Paul understood that well in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. In his suffering, Paul argues that he gives testimony both to Christ's death and his resurrection in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus promises that the Son of Man will be vindicated by God by being raised from the dead and promises that he will come in glory of the Father. That we know for sure. I can't think of a better, wonderful, simple, plain example of how to evangelise than what Jesus has just given us today in the Gospel of Mark. We don't need a theological degree to understand that. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. It's not just a statement we make. It is an acknowledgement of a powerful costly truth. We must not merely say it with our lips. We must be ready to back it up with our lives.